Amen. Oh, what amazing love. Amen. And before we were formally introduced to that amazing love of our Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel and through the pages of scripture, our hearts were alerted to amazing love through our mothers in many cases. That was the first place where we felt love. And uh, our mother's loves created that runway that allowed us to appreciate uh, Jesus's uh, unique love for us. How you doing this morning, Gospel Hope? Good. It's good to see your um, smiling faces, and I am deeply uh, always appreciative and paying attention to when the weather is not, not its best, you know, when I see folks, and then uh, I pray that there are others that are out um, spending time with their moms in their various places. So I am deeply grateful for those of you who decided to brave the elements and, uh, and come on out this morning. Um, would you be in prayer for, uh, be in prayer for the uh, McCambic family? So two weeks ago, Ryan was speaking on Sunday at uh, Blueprint. Uh, the week uh, after that, he was at Mount Vernon, one of our other um, partner churches. And then uh, today, uh, they are, as a family, are just simply enjoying vacation. And um, I pray that they would be um, uh, not... Um, in any way anxious about what's happening here, but just as a family, that their vacation would truly be redemptive. It would be exactly what God intended for times away and for resting. And, uh, you know, pray for me too, as I get ready to go on vacation, that um, I am as worn out as possible. I want to hang glide and like swing on ropes. So, uh, so, well, uh, details to follow. I'm pretty sure it'll work its way out on a message somewhere. Um, let's pray. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning, and to say that we need your help is the understatement of eternity. Uh, we desperately need you, Lord God, but our desperation doesn't always manifest itself until we find ourselves in a pinch. But Lord God, by faith, we come to you recognizing that you are the all-sufficient God. And even things that we are trained in, Lord God, we would be troubled to do them well in a way that worships you without your help. I pray, O oh God, that in no way would I stand here in my own strength, but that in every way, O oh God, that we would be fully dependent on you. I pray also, Lord God, for... Um, uh, those who are listening, including my own heart, that my heart, Lord God, our hearts would just be cultured um, and made ready to capture exactly what you would have us to know about you and your church and your son and, Lord God, how you would have us to move forward. Um, this we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen and amen. So as you know, we are continuing to work in our series entitled Messy, Messy, and uh, kind of what a better, uh, I couldn't think of a better intersection to talk about messy and relationships in the body of Christ and how messy they can be, but glory be to God, there is a plan there uh, to redeem those messy relationships. But, but what a beautiful intersection when we start thinking about the ministry of mothers, right? Because I don't know of anybody just within, the, within natural, normal, everyday life who, who is better at helping us with messes, right? Uh, when I think about moms, I mean, the ministry of cleaning up messes uh, doesn't, it, it doesn't just end with picking up spilled cups of juice to make sure that it doesn't run between the crease in the table and mess up the floor. Uh, it doesn't stop with uh, speedily getting up ice cream off the carpet and then trying to also wipe off the child so that those clothes aren't stained. Uh, it extends into busting into folks' room of like, you need to get these clothes up and take them downstairs because you won't have anything to wear to school next week. Uh, it extends to you need to learn how to manage this a little bit better so that when you become an adult, you'll actually be able to function in college. Um, I mean, just the, the, the ministry of moms helping us in our lives work through and clean up messes is phenomenal, and it is enduring and ongoing. 
And uh, when I think about a mother's uh, ministry of helping us to clean up messes, I can't escape the fact of how proactive mothers are. Mothers are never passive in messes, right? I mean, again, when, when, when a mom sees a mess, I mean, she begins to move at light speed, with, whether it's grabbing bounty or picking up the child, getting them out of it, stripping off their clothes, putting them in the tub, turning on the shower, going back to do this. I mean, moms are the most aggressive people when it comes to their level of urgency. Meanwhile, the child is just stumbling there, just watching stuff spill, just watching things. Or other people who, who are not connected to the child will oftentimes, well, well I, I didn't know it was time to change them. And moms are like, no, you, got, you can't be passive on this. You got to get in here. You, we don't want the baby to have a rash or we don't have this. So moms have this wonderful way of looking at messes, not for just what they mean in the moment and how they immediately damage the fabric of one's clothes, but what they mean for future, what the future implications of not addressing messes are. And so I believe that we could learn much from moms as we look at today's text and understand this, that the church cannot be passive in addressing its messes. The church cannot afford to be passive in addressing its messes. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear this echo from today's text. I'm going to read some things to you here in these 13 verses that we're going to cover. I'm going to do my best to be brief. Pray for me. Um, and as we're trying to be brief, there are going to be four main points that we bring through that are part of what it means for a church to not be passive in addressing its messes. But uh, Paul begins with these words. If you'll join me here, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst pagans. I mean, it, it would even make the folks in Vegas blush. We don't do that out here. That's nasty right? Uh, it says, it's not even reported among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, and ought not you to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. The first uh, idea that I really want to push forward as a part of the church's attitude to not be passive in addressing its messes is this. We have to move from arrogance to agony over sin in our midst. We must move from arrogance to agony. Notice that he says, why are you arrogant? Rather, you're not mourning. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I read this passage and I hear about the uh, uh, sins of others or the sins of other people, I don't know if mourning is one of my first emotional responses. Uh, I, I'm like, this is an interesting conversation. Like, I don't even, not only is mourning not one of my initial responses, but, 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 but likewise, I don't even know if, I, I would say arrogance is my initial response. So where is Paul getting this emotional range from? What is he seeing? What is he hearing that would suggest that we need to move from arrogance to agony, as I would call it, if we're going to be a church that is not passive in addressing its messes? What assumptions must Paul be making? Well, one assumption that if we're going to mourn about the sins of others, it must be this, that they, that they must care about what is happening in the lives of other people. I would say that there's another assumption on the table, that uh, they are connected to this brother in some unique way, that they consider it, what is the sin that is happening, as something that affects them also. They are clear that he cannot continue in that lifestyle and be linked to them as a local body. And therefore, his impending separation from the body would cause them angst. 
But let's just be honest. When I hear about lifestyle sin in the life of someone in my local church, does it really cause me to mourn? Does it really bring me to a place of agony? Um, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes my first response is anger. If I think about how it might cascade out and, uh, and affect a larger church, maybe I can say it would be uh, anxiousness, like, ooh, we, how are we going to address this? I think it might be some aggravation, like, are you kidding me? How could this person do such a thing? I mean, I can think about a variety of different emotions, but agony, until I begin to think about this one virtue that we constantly preach at this church, that we are not like a family, but we are a family. Now the game radically changes. Because if you think about this, if, if, if someone is living under your roof, in your same house, in your immediate family, and something is breaking out in their life that is damaging to them, but it's being done while they are in communion with you, it becomes also your mess. Have you ever noticed that? It is only until we compartmentalize our lives and say, well, you do you and I'll do me. That arrogance, that pride, that individualism in the body allows us to look at the sins of others and say, that's your mess and not mine. But the moment that we move from individualism into true family and community, your sin becomes something that affects me deeply. And we both have to be open to that reality. Agony says, this isn't just your sin, this is our family. This is our church. And our shared pursuit of sanctification makes this also our mess. So the next time that you hear about something happening in the lives of a brother or a sister, and you begin to maybe just go, ooh, that's kind of sticky. But you yourself say, but that's not me, that's not my responsibility, see you next week. Ask yourself in that moment, are we really doing life like family? Are we really doing life like family? So again, point one, for a church that is going to be active and not passive in addressing its messes, we have to be a church that when it comes to sin in the lives of others, that we move from a place of arrogance to a place of agony. Now, one of the great ways to move from arrogance to agony is to say, man, what would I do if that's me? To simply put that person's shoes on. What, what would I do if that was my child? What would I do if that was my spouse? What would I do if that was my daughter? What would I do if that was my aunt, my uncle? What would I do if that was being done at my house? And the moment that you dial into that emotional framework, you're officially ready to view that sin rightly. Because the beautiful thing about moving from arrogance to agony or moving from being puffed up to mourning about sin that's happening in the lives of others, that, that it doesn't make you go soft on the sin, but it allows you to clearly see it through a gospel lens. Man, here is an individual who is wrecking their lives, and they're not just wrecking their lives, they're doing it in a way that is wrecking the lives of others. This isn't just misbehaving, this is a mess, and we got to get out the spiritual bounty. So, does anybody use Bounty anymore? Are we on like those pre-moistened um, Lysol wipes? I don't, I don't know, that just didn't land well. Does anybody know what Bounty is, the quicker picker rubber? <laughs> just curious, okay, okay. Are, is, that the, is that the paper towel of the day? Costco. Costco? Okay, what's their motto? Oh, okay, Kirkland? <laughs> you probably gotta use a bunch of them, like wrap your whole hand in it because they're so thin. Anyway, <laughs> back to our regularly scheduled um, program. 
Nevertheless, in verses three through five, something pretty interesting happens. Paul says these words, for though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit as if um, uh, present. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who, is did, who did such a thing. Uh, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit is present, and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here's one of the most profound demonstrations of church discipline. This is obviously a lifestyle issue. Uh, if this particular congregation has gone forward with the other steps of addressing it head on or they've been ignoring it, looks like, and he can take him pride in, in that exists. But anyway, here's an individual that they're approaching and said, this can't exist. And Paul says, this can't, we have to to judge this. Now, I know that the word judgment doesn't resonate well um, um, amongst many people today, but judgment is real, and we do it all the times in our hearts. The issue with judgment is we don't like the way uh, it feels when we are subject to it, and therefore we like to pretend we don't do it. We also don't like the, the stigma that's tied to it, but making an assessment of whether or not something is right or wrong uh, is why you have an attorney when you get rear-ended. Or when somebody uh, breaks into your house, the reason that you call the cops. Uh, so, so judgment is real. Let's just kind of get over the stigma that, that, that the, the world has allowed us to adopt. But the Bible has something very special and interesting to say about uh, a judgment as well. We need to move as a church. We need to move from being uh, just for having the authority to do these things to actual action to do these things. Matthew chapter 18 uh, 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 is, is where Paul is getting this from. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, listen to the words of Jesus, Right? Same person who gave us the words in Matthew chapter 7 where many try to say well, we shouldn't judge. But listen to Jesus here. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. See that redemption always in view. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established in the evidence of two or three witnesses. That way so that it's not scurrilous, it's not just rumor-based. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, right? So it wasn't just a public airing of laundry. It started as a private conversation. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector, that is, as a pagan or somebody who does not uh, know Christ. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on, in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth as uh, anything that they should ask, it will be done for them uh, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So this is what Paul, the teaching that Paul would be leaning upon when he said, when you gather in Jesus' name, you need, to, uh, you need to address this mess. So Paul gets it from Jesus. And Jesus always shows us that it is fueled by reconciliation. Even in this most heavy-handed, uh, as some might uh, title it, in this most heavy-handed example, notice what Paul says, that you should remove this person from your presence, you should turn him over so that through the destruction of his flesh, that is, in his separation from the local church, as the Lord recognizes this as a formal act of discipline from the local church, that this person's flesh, the, the circumstances of external life, would begin to make this person realize their deep need and dependency for God and repentance. We can all identify with that, right? I mean, hopefully it's not through the total destruction of our flesh that we recognize our need for him, but many of you have a testimony of coming to know Christ because London bridges were falling down. 
I mean, it was apocalypse now in your personal life. And you was like, I need rescue. And you ran to the Lord in repentance. So we all know that this is a personal reality that sometimes the, the, the issues of life begin to make us aware of how deeply we need God. And so this is what is to happen in the brother who's involved in the mess. The church is called, even for the sake of his own redemption, to put him in a situation where he has to realize his deep need for God. He says that person should be separated from you so that they can feel their need for God. Verses six through eight has more to say about this. Why does Paul go at, why is this necessary? It just seems so, why can't we just let this person stay at our church? Yeah, we know he's a dog. Yeah, we know he nasty. Yeah, we know he's doing all of this stuff. Why can't we just let him chill and hopefully the gospel will saturate his heart while he's sitting in the pews? And why can't we just let him continue to serve on all the various teams? Why not? Just let him hang out. Why can't we just be that version of Jesus, just a super dovey loving one that doesn't have any uh, 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 integrity for righteousness and holiness? Why can't we just let him hang out? Paul answers that question. And here's how he answers it in verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Bread analogy, right? So yeast, something that makes it rise, just a very small amount, virtually undetectable. The, we don't taste it. We don't really see it, but it's having this dynamic effect on the whole lump. Uh, 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 another example of how leaven leavens the whole lump is I'll, I'll give you a, a, a kind of a peep into my own life. Uh, have I ever told the story about uh, when I moved back here in 2005 from Detroit and I, um, I, had, um, I, I had my CCW, my concealed weapons permit? Have I ever told this story? All right, here we go. So um, while living in Detroit, I got my concealed weapons permit. And what's interesting about it, and I'm not saying that this is sin, and I'm not also not setting up a booth for the NRA out back for donations, but I just want you to just feel me. This is not an indictment on the lifestyle. It's just a, I think you'll just appreciate this. So I got my concealed weapons permit, and, uh, and so I carried all the time, because I went through a great deal of work to get this thing. Detroit made it really hard, and I passed all the tests, and so I started carrying my firearm. And one of the first things that made it uh, so interesting is while it was virtually invisible to the public, it was, it was a very private thing, right? It was for concealment. It radically modified my lifestyle in so many ways. One of the first areas was that if my natural waist size was a 34, I all of a sudden had to convert all my pants to 36s because I wore my, my weapon on the inside of my waistband. The other thing that happened is uh, during the wintertime, you know, the, the stock of my firearm had a tendency to wear out the insides of my coat. So I either had to change the style of coats that I wore or get some kind of reinforced lining, or I had to change the kind of weapon that I was going to wear, right? Then on top of that, if I was dropping the kids off at school, it was like, ooh, I can't take the gun into school. I can only take it in the parking lot. So I got to pull up and I gotta, if I got to go inside, I got to unstrap, put it in the glove box. And I got to be thinking 15 steps ahead all the time. I could be going to Target. If Target has a little emblem on the door that says no concealed weapons, man, I got to go back to the car. Well, then that's just what you, your routine when in the fall. What happens in the summer when you got to conceal it? Right? So you're just wearing these long sleeve, or not long sleeve, you're wearing these t-shirts and you just, you know who else is carrying because we're the, we the hottest people in the room. You know what I mean? Just walking around with long stuff on flannel in spring. You know? Be on the lookout for those people when they come in the bank. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but here's the deal. 
all these lifestyle modifications, and it literally, this one small thing that you want to keep concealed and accommodate is radically changing how you view life, where you go, what you do, how you move in every way. And not only do you have all these logistics changes, then you have mentality changes because you go through a training to be able to wear it, and so you go through these hours of videos of when you can shoot and when you shouldn't shoot. And guess what happens? You're always on a scenario looking for when you can shoot. I don't know if this happens to everybody, but you get this kind of vigilante thing kind of going. And so I stopped carrying my firearm. One day when I was in traffic, someone forgot to turn their blinker on, got over on me, and I reached. And I was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, this is the end. This needs to go home and be put away. And he said, you know, I got to get, not, not get rid of it, but I need to, like, I got to settle down because my, not only has my wardrobe changed, but now my mindset has changed. But what am I trying to say to you? One small thing that no one else can see allowed to subsist in my life is radically changing everything around me and the way that I view it. I view a simple mistake to turn on one's blinker as an act of aggression. Oh, really? You're trying to get over on me? You see what I'm saying? Now, you, know, you can send me some emails about this if you want me or if you want to, but what I'm really trying to drive home is if you have sin in your own personal life that you're constantly trying to conceal, it doesn't stay concealed. It may stay visually concealed, but conceptually, man, it's just running all over the place. Because you got to cover your tracks. You got to maintain this whole like crazy low-key life of doing this and not doing that and trying not to show up here and not wanting to say this or say that. Or you might let the cat out of the bag. Anything that is, that is weaponized like that that you maintain concealed in your life has this way of becoming conspicuous in your mindset and behavior. It happens individually and it happens for us as a church corporately. So the moment that we allow sin, lifestyle sin, to remain accommodated within the local church, we then allow the culture of the church to change. Therefore, we as a church cannot be passive when it comes to addressing our messes. We need to move from accommodating to eliminating sinful lifestyles. Now, how many people will agree that it feels deeply uncomfortable and hypocritical to want to address sinful lifestyles in others when you feel like you're holding a bag yourself? That's one of the first things that will jam us up. We're just like, man, I can't address that because, you know, I still, you know, I'm having problems watching my mouth. I can't address that because, you know, I'm out here doing blah, blah, blah. Therefore, therefore, the corporate call to sanctification is also an individual call to sanctification because that's exactly the kind of shared corporate accountability that the Lord wants us to have. It's like... I want to be at a place where I can be a responsible sibling in the lives of others. Therefore, being a responsible sibling isn't just found in how I view them, but also in how I do me. So in other words, if you're struggling with a lifestyle of sin today, let one of the great encouragements be the fact that, Lord, I am putting myself in a position where I can't responsibly speak into the lives of others without feeling like a hypocrite. Let that be your encouragement for repenting from that lifestyle, in addition to the simple fact that you just shouldn't be doing it. Does this make sense? So the Lord is not saying that we have to be perfect, 
but we ought to be in pursuit of a kind of personal sanctification that honestly, uniquely equips you to spur others on to sanctification. Consider this, the person who sits down and tells you how statistically you should not do this or should not do that. But they, they don't go that extra step of saying, and man, or, you know, girl, at some point in my life, I too had to fight that. That, now our shared pursuit of sanctification has some gravitas, right? Because you're beginning to open up the medicine cabinet and say, man, this is how I had to walk through that. So the call isn't for perfection. It is the call for people that are in a shared pursuit for sanctification. You see that? And so, again, we need to move from accommodating to eliminating. We want our lives individually and collectively to reflect the truth of Jesus in our lives. I'll continue to read the passage, verses 6 through 8. It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. You are all, you are really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Paul has kind of massaged into the text is the fact that the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. It has been imputed to us. And we are being urged to live out the, re the reality that's already resident within us. So it's not an unseemly thing that we're being called to. It's not an impossible thing. It is live out what is already reflected in Christ. You are unleavened. The Lord built a body not on unleavened bread, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. He is the righteous foundation. Just live up to that. We're not asking you to be individually righteous on your own merit. I'm not asking you to be arrogant about righteousness. I'm asking you to come under the authority of Jesus Christ in your pursuit of righteousness. But all in the name of clearing up our own messes and then being uniquely positioned to have a collective congregation that is pursuing truth and moving away from messes. The righteous example, here's something that I want to convey. When we talk about eliminating sinful lifestyles, this passage invites us to look at Christ and to look at the gospel holistically in this way. We often talk about Jesus as the perfect moral example and what would Jesus do? But that's only one part of the story. When we think about Jesus as the Passover lamb, we're not called to just look at his moral perfection. We're called to look at the sacrificial implications of the death, burial, and resurrection. The sacrificial implications of the death, burial, and resurrection, it says, when, when, when John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, it is a call to not just try to pursue moral perfection like Christ, but to lean on the power that is provided by Christ. The Lord recognizes that our ability to please him with our energy alone is impossible. We need the active power of the gospel and the forgiveness that is powerfully and beautifully embedded within it in order to pursue this life. So do not let the adversary whip us into thinking that because I've sinned once, I've sinned twice, I've sinned thrice or quatrice, because I have sinned a bunch of times that I am somehow not able to speak into the lives of others. Does that make sense? Because you are not relying on you as a standard, but on Christ as the standard. And then, of course, we are called, if we're looking squarely at Jesus, to lean not only on his moral example, his sacrificial reality, but also the resurrected reality. 
We say that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is residing within us and testifying to us that we are his children and that it is actively conforming our character. If we plug our faith into that, it's like, Lord, you are actively working to transform me personally. You didn't outsource it. Your Holy Spirit is actually residing in me to do that. And so we need to move from arrogance to agony over sin. We need to move from authority to action. We need to move from accommodating to eliminating uh, sinful lifestyles. We must make sure that we are not hesitant and that we move on this in the lives of others if we're trying to, and if we don't, if we're, if we're hesitant, it suggests that we are trying to accommodate something in our own lives. Final point, final series of points, let's be truthful, Rod. Verses 9 through 13. It says here, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Lean in on this, guys. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. In other words, if you tried to eliminate the company of people like that in your lives holistically, you would have to live on another planet, right? But now... I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. So a person who calls himself a Christian and who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have we to do, what have I to do with judging outsiders, so non-believers? It is not those, uh, is it not those who inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those who are, God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is an interesting statement um, because I believe it's calling us to do something. It, it, it's highlighting our relationship between us, the church, and the world. Now, the Bible tells us uh, over in uh, 1 Peter that judgment will begin with the house of God. But here it is. The Bible says that we have a responsibility to have a responsibility to be judgmental, not in a secular sense, but to, but, to be, to, but to handle our messes in here and to not judge the world. Have you noticed that we kind of do it the inverse? Like we, the collective holy community, look out there and you're like, can you believe that they signed that into law? Huh. The Bible tells us that God will judge that. We are supposed to be operating with the microscopes in here. Why? so that the power of the collective community and what it represents is not just an awareness that sin is real and exists. We, we got the world thinking that we think we're supposed to be sinless, that we've never fallen. It's, it, it, no, that's not it. We are supposed to move from an awareness that our sin exists to a witness on how you handle sin. Because everybody has sin. So our way of handling should be a witness to the world. I, um, uh, many of you know, uh, I'm going to use these points and then I'm going to keep it moving here. Um, just by example, Jesus dined with the world. But man, when he encountered his own, the Pharisees, it was fisticuffs. It was game on. You remember that? But he sat down. His, one of the chief accusations against him was that, man, you hang out with sinners. What's up with you? And so, so, so the greatest indictment that the world has against the church is our arrogance amid our awareness of our own sin. That's where they always, boom, give us the jab. 
They say we aren't handling our own sin, so how dare you be qualified? So if we start handling our own sin the biblical way, our own message the biblical way, it gives additional oomph to our message. It's like, wow, your church did that? Your church addressed that? Your church speaks to that? Your collective community holds you accountable for that? Now we are becoming a witness and through our awareness that sin actually exists. But why would we do that and how would that actually draw people to us? I'd love to give you an example. Uh, I started this earlier. Many of you know, some of you might know, uh, you know, kind of in a past life, um, um, I, I worked for an organization that provided an all expense paid um, uh, trip um, out of the country to um, uh, leaders and top performers and for, and for their spouses. And so, you know, 600 or so of your, your best friends uh, are all in this place. And uh, this was not a missions conference. So, you know, folks are setting records in alcohol consumption. Um, I mean, just all kinds of craziness is happening. I mean, I want you just to imagine um, the wildest movie you've ever seen and some of the stuff that you would probably say, oh, that's so boundaryless and untoward, right? Right, right. That kind of stuff is going down, right? And what will be so intriguing is out of the 15 times that Carrie and I had a chance to, we were blessed to go on this trip, I could always identify a person who was living differently who may not have lived differently the previous year. I would watch their movements. I could see them when we would eat breakfast. Huh, she's not eating that. I would see folks out on the beach. Hmm, she's not ordering or drinking that. We go out, I mean, luge dive, snorkel, ATV, elephant ride. I mean, just whatever you want to call it. We're doing all this kind of stuff. This person is straight chilling. And I said, you know what? I got it. She's expecting. She's expecting. And, you, and, and sure enough, you'd find out. And this is the person who was with the best of them. I'm riding the elephant backwards last year. <laughs> right? But what I found to be so awesome and powerful is that here is a person that on the basis of the fact that there is a new life growing inside them, that they must make radical changes regardless of their environment. That, that, that awareness became a witness and it dictated everything. I mean, there were people who would, 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 would be out in 80, 90 degree sun on the beach wearing long sleeve shirts because they didn't want Zika. There, there would be people who, who could set records with Jaeger bombs who wouldn't sip water unless it came from a bottle. Where does this radical shift come from? An awareness that there is something at work within me. Now, what's beautiful about this is for many of us, it, the life was unseen, unheard, and unknown. We just knew that somebody was doing life differently. This is the same call on us as the gospel. And do you know what would happen in these environments where this person was living radically differently, everybody was curious as to why. And even when people were confident that they knew why, they still felt compelled to ask, girl, why you not drinking? Why you not horseback riding? Why you not jumping in the galoon? Why you not speedboating? Huh? Why you not parasailing? They ask. 
And that's the same effect that we want to have. We want this unseen, private, seemingly hidden life at work within us that begins to dictate decisions, changes appetites and habits, even if I formerly and previously would have loved to do these things. My awareness of this new life begins to do something in me that causes others to get curious. How can you navigate in such a seedy environment and still be sane? Because I place greater value on what is in me than what is happening and the fun potential that is outside of me. This is the kind of power that Christ wants to have in our lives that would compel the local church to be proactive in addressing its messes. That it wants us to raise our awareness of what God is doing in our lives. Not to set us up to be perfectionists and to be judges, but to set us up to be so radically different that both our peers and both in the world and in the pews are compelled to find out what is going on in your life that causes you to live like that. It is then when the gospel has taken grips within us that we can begin to live life differently and feel very comfortable in addressing our own messes. So, I believe that this is the, the call of the gospel, that we would not judge the world, but that we would judge ourselves. And as we judge ourselves, it does not mute our voice, but it gives meaning to the voice of the Holy Spirit so that we would continue to plow forward in our pursuit of sanctification. The body is to be a collective witness of the work of God through forgiveness, not the work of God through perfection. But let the analysis and the judgment begin first with the house of God. We as a church cannot be passive in addressing our messes. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now thanking you and praising you for your great work of your Holy Spirit the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And we ask, oh God, that as we're kind of peering into our own lives and maybe even feeling a degree of discomfort, that you would just kind of place your finger on that and allow us to know exactly where we need to make shifts. Show us, Lord God, where we might be accommodating a sinful lifestyle. Show us, oh God, where we've been hesitant to address something that's happening in the lives of a brother or sister because we are feeling like a hypocrite because of what's going on in our own. Help us to be a people, oh God, who mirrors your emotion when we see lifestyle sin in others. Not to be nitpickers, but to be family members who are deeply concerned about both the soul and the message that it sends to the rest of the body and to the rest of the world. Lord God, do a work in us in this way. In Jesus' name, we pray.